I just thought about the fact that, uh, um, you know, where is our life? Where is our life, really? Um, is our life an answer to prayer of our God? And uh, so there was, there was two verses that came to mind. If you have your scripture before you, we're just going to go quickly to them. Matthew 9, uh, 38 is the first scripture that I just want you to just look at as we... 9.38. Jesus was going out into all the towns and the villages teaching. And... Uh, the good news of the kingdom, healing uh, every disease. And he had compassion on the crowd because he saw them as harassed sheep. And he had compassion. Don't you think that we live in a land where we have a lot of harassed sheep right now? I do. I do. It's incredible. Separated, divided, isolated, harassed sheep. So he said these words in starting the 37th verse. He said, Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers unto his harvest field. Is your life an answer to that prayer? And then go with me to John 14. John 14, 12 through 14. John 14, 12 through 14. I just read the first part. It's a a chapter where where Christ is comforting his disciples because he told them, I'm leaving you. And they're they're like, well, well, wait a minute. What do you mean leaving us? And uh, he blew blew their hearts apart. And then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled in the first part of the verse. But then it comes on in the 12th verse. says, very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Is your life an answer to prayer? You know, the Christian life is caught up in so many things. And sometimes we can forget that it's more about being than doing. The answer to prayer starts out, or at least the key to the answer to prayer starts out with Jesus Christ as being the the, the Christ that made atonement for us. That he took our place on the cross and died in our stead. And that in the shedding of that blood, that your life is complete, your sins are completely covered. And not just that you're changed like you become a better person, but you're transformed into a new creation. Your life is completely different than it should be. Because the eternal God has come to reside in your soul. And so what what encompasses your life? What's the thing that stands out about you? Is it that you're a Christian intellect and that you spend a lot of your time studying? Is it that you are a Christian moralist who focuses on on not sinning? Is it that you're a Christian worker and you spend most of your time serving? 
Is it that you're a Christian evangelist, that you spend most of your time sharing the gospel? None of these are wrong in of themselves, and I'm not undermining them at all. But are these the things of themselves that is the greater work that Christ was talking about? That is the greater work of the evangelist um, or the greater work of the harvestor? I want to know, so we ought to find out. What, What filled Jesus' passion? What made him the most angry? What was he most passionate about in his, his life on this earth? Mark eleven seventeen says this, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. If you remember, our Lord took a whip and cast them out because our life, this time, should be marked with our greater work. And that is on our knees before the Lord. That is a surrendered life before God, crying out to him for the world. Now, I don't want to get caught up in, um, in the logistics of what the temple was used for versus what God had intended. But I think if we go back into history and we see what touched the heart of our God, I think it will give us a vision If you remember, the first people that were created walked with God every day. They talked with him. It was an open communion with them until Genesis 3. And the fall happened. And there was a separation. And if you remember in those times, in in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Genesis, darkness broke out over the land. Not only were Adam and Eve separated from the garden and not allowed to go back in, but also darkness broke out. Even their own sons, Cain, killed Abel, if you remember. But also polygamy started uh, under Lamech, in which he married more than one woman. And darkness was breaking out over the land. But then... Eve has another child, has Seth, and she says, the Lord has given me another man. And in that time, it says at the end of of chapter 4, it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. In the midst of the darkness, God's pen moved to reveal to us the opening of communion again of man and God. That is huge. After the Israelites failed to go into the promised land and traveled the deserts for 38 years, God took two years in Moses' life to instruct and impact them and encourage them to enter again. And in Deuteronomy 4, 7, Moses tells the people the heart of God and the covenant that's there. He says, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way that our Lord Our God is near us whenever we pray to him. David picked up the same spirit in Psalm 43 when he said, Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And Jeremiah echoes the heart of God when he says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and unsearchable things you cannot know. And so as we begin to understand the heart of our Father, we understand the truth, and that is the fact that no work is done. 
No, nothing changes, nothing happens unless his people pray, unless they come into union with the heart of their father and in a crying out to God that he begins to move as, as our hearts come in unity with him and we come into unity with his will. God moves in his will. I remember when this church started, one of the things that us as leadership did, and even in our Wednesday night Bible study, was sometimes we'd lay right on the ground and we'd cry out to God. Because there was one thing that was in unity with our leadership, and that was none of us were capable of starting the church. None of us had the wisdom to it. None of us had the ability. There was no professionals among us. When the CRC had, uh, did assessment on me and to, to see if I had the DNA to start up a church, I think their evaluation read like this, he's crazy enough to do it. <laughs> I think that was my only, my only, uh, yeah, qualification. But people of God... How many times haven't you seen something happen and, and you believed that God was moving in it and you believed that, that God was about this and that he was moving somebody's people's heart and all of a sudden they're gone? Ever had that happen? I have. I have. I, uh, I, in this church, it's been the most amazing things that I have seen. Just one story. Um, so Sue and I, when we resigned from our position in Holland, ended up in a farmhouse. And the way they got, we got there was uh, that a young man had come to us and said, hey, where are you guys going to move when you sell your house? And we said, we have no idea. We're just selling because God said sell. And so he said, well, I've got a grandpa. Let me check the farmhouse. And, uh, and he did. And he said, there's missionaries living there right now, and uh, they're moving out the end of May. And that's exactly the timing that our house deal went, um, was sold and when we were to move out. It's perfect timing. Some years later, years later, we were doing this church, and two people come in the back door. And they sit down. We don't know them. Sue started talking to them. And by the end of the service, um, she says to me, we're going to go out to dinner with these two because uh, we wanted to get to know them. So we went out to dinner. And uh, you know how Dutch bingo goes? You, know, you say this, they say this, they go this, to this, this, this. And all of a sudden, we realized they're the missionaries that moved out of the house that we moved into. <laughs> and they're here worshiping in this place. And I look at Sue and I says, well, of course they are. God has it in his mind. That, they're gonna, that we're going to serve side by side with each other. They're not here. They're gone. And I have seen that time and time again. And as I thought about this time and our, and our, and our t time of devotion together this morning, I thought about this. It was a conviction to me. Andersma, how much are you on your knees battling for these people? Because people of God, this is a war. Craig gets to see these kids all week long. He's warring for these kids in this place if he's on his knees. It's not the programming he's putting together. It's not the great 
volunteers that he has. It's not making sure he's all organized and even preaching the word. It's that he's on his knees crying out for these kids because it's the heart of our Father. The most important thing is that, and then the men began, then they started to call on the name of the Lord. It, has, it is the move of every revival in all of history. It is the change agent. It is the bigger thing. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we're so busy with things to do that prayer almost seems like a waste of time. Now, I don't say this sacrilegiously, but I've noticed it in my own life. I will be sitting there praying, and all of a sudden, I'll start thinking about things I've got to do for the day, and all of a sudden, I'm, I just get up, and I, I, I start doing them. Or I get going in my day, and I get started, and I never get to my knees. Are you with me? People of God, and, and, and that, I, this is, so this is personal, so I'm, I'm kind of letting you in on my heart a little bit. But I'm telling you that the context of both the harvesters that, that will do the work of reaching out and, and the greater works that God is calling all of us to do are all in the context of prayer. All in the context of prayer. And that's where the greater work comes. Why is that? First of all, because prayer is an act of true faith. Psalm 14, 1 and verse 4 says, The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They never call on the Lord. They never call on the Lord. Psalm 119, 169 takes the inverse of that and says, May my Cry, come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Faith moves the heart. It's an act of faith. When you get on your knees before God, you're acting out your faith. It's, it's ridiculous to the world. They say, oh, you're just, you're just talking in thin air. Nobody's listening. Faith is an act of prayer. Or faith, prayer is an act of faith. I pray because I believe. I believe, therefore I pray. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Amen. Thank you for that. Second thing is, prayer changes everything. Psalm 80, 17 and 18 says this, let your hand rest upon rest on the man at your right side, right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. In the midst of that is a is, is a is a um, messianic prophetic word that says, Your hand, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, Jesus himself. David saw in his heart the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. He's coming. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. You're not going to pray if the Son of Man doesn't live in your heart. You're not going to. Look at your life. You're not going to. It is the Son of Man that cries out from within your being 
the desire to communicate with his Father, and it's the Spirit of Christ on you that, that propels you to pray and drives you to your knees, especially when things are dark. You know what stops us from praying? When we think that the world is overcoming us. When it seems like it's so dark and it's just absolutely impossible for anything to change. That's what stops us. But when the, Son of the, when the Spirit of the Son of God living inside of you speaks out, all, as, as, as Pastor Darrell said, all hope springs forth. All hope. Because he is the hope of the world. And you do not give up. Because he can overcome anything. And even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing before the fiery furnace, said, Our God can deliver us and will deliver us from your hand. But if he chooses not to deliver us from this fire, I will, we will still not worship your God or you. That's faith. That's faith. That's amazing faith. faith. Prayer changes everything. It's an act of true faith. It's an act of true faith and it changes everything. And prayer is the unifying salvation. Romans 10, 12 through 13 says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In our prayers, we become one people. Somebody once said in a marriage conference, if a husband and a wife prays together, they stay together. And it's true. You can't pray for somebody you hate. Called to. We're called to pray for those that we hate. Yes, but it, but it holds us together when we pray together. So, prayer is an act of true faith. Prayer changes everything. Prayer unifies us. And listen to this. People of God, prayer is the battle. It is the battle. Never in my life have I watched prayer in the last two years work in so many different ways, both within this church and also in some of the volunteer work that I've done in my life. It is amazing to watch prayer work. Remember Matthew 9, 38 says, Pray the Lord of the harvest to send the laborers. He is telling us that prayer is the key to success. It is the communicative vehicle that causes our hearts to align with God's heart so that he will be, um, so his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But also the key is to open the door of the kingdom of God to the hearts of, of people and that the advancement of the work happens so that his kingdom will come. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you I know exactly how that all works. There is a mystery to our God of how he, how he saves us and then calls us to align with him in his heart and to cry out his very words of his will. I don't know, I don't know how that works, but that is amazing. 
that he would reveal it. Thank you for the uh, verse, Pastor Darrell, about uh, enlighten their hearts, because that is, that's really it is. That's, that's the center of the punch, is the fact that as our eyes are opened within our hearts, we begin to cry out because we get to see clearly that which we could not see with these eyes. But I want to give you an illustration of what it looks like when prayer begins to work. In the Bible, God uses many times the, um, the harvesting or, the, uh, or, or, or some kind of uh, gardening kind of picture for us to get a picture of God working. And, you know, it sounds nice, but you know that when, uh, you know what happens when a harvester harvests? The action is actually quite violent. It is, listen to me, it is the ripping up or tearing of that which has been growing in a peace-filled field. All of a sudden, after months of sitting there and growing and just nurturing and, and, and having life, all of a sudden, there is a, of course, today we have machines, but they used to have a, a harvester that they would sweep through and cut the product. They're ripped and cut out of, out of the life source that they were given the life source that, that they had grown in, the life source that had brought them nutrients and water. It's the same with salvation. God uses life's distress and convictions of sin to create circumstances that become unbearable for the person. This is the first answer to the prayer that the Spirit of God calls us to pray. The Lord, we are praying for the harvest to be ready, to be white and ready for the harvesting, that the plants will no longer be satisfied staying in the peace-filled fields, but are white, meaning Holy Spirit moved for the harvest. It's the first answer. The second answer to the prayer is for the harvesters. Those workers God is calling, listen to me, to be available, to be available for that moment. See, the worst thing about us being on our internet and, on, and so busy and, and all the things that distract us in this world is that we're not listening to the Spirit and put in the place that God wants us to be. Because see, the harvester, you're praying for the harvester not because of the talent of the harvester, but because of the, of the presence of the harvester. You're praying that God will move someone into the right place at the right time so that someone can hear the gospel at a time that they are in distress or that there is a conviction that the life they've been living is completely wrong and that the place that they are is not honoring God. And you get the opportunity to then share the good news of a God who so loved them that he shed his blood for them, took, his, took their place, and gives them the opportunity for their life to be completely changed and transformed. This is the picture of the harvest. I think it's a completely different picture than sometimes what we think about when we talk about evangelism. Because for so long, the church has been fighting people to a better life. 
You're not inviting people to a better life. You're inviting them to a new life. And you know what? Quite honestly, it might be a harder life. You know what? Nate does not have at his fingertips the resources that you and I have in America. He has much less. He lives in an orphanage where they are, they are very dependent on, on gifts and things given to them, and they are probably many times on their knees. They watch these kids come and go. These kids have been, if I'm knowing this correctly, they have either been abandoned by their parents, their parents are dead, or, um, or they have run away, or there's some separation between their parents. And they're sitting there all alone with no hope. And God's called Nate to do that work. And so he's saying to them, come and follow Jesus Christ. Can't guarantee that your life is going to be better, but I can guarantee your life's going to be completely different. And it's true. So what's the unifying connection? First of all, as we think about this ripping up and tearing up of what God, of harvesting, what did God do in your life to rip up and to harvest you? Some of you can name that right now. I, I always say the saddest person is the one that they never know what they were ripped up and harvested from. Or you saved from. It's very apparent to believers. Very apparent. And so... I want you to just think about the distress that he allowed you to experience, the conviction of sin that he brought to you, so that you could be harvested into his peace, real peace. That becomes foundational for you to become a harvester. When you remember where you came from, you remember what God took you from, that then becomes motivation behind your heart to say, you know what, if you can do it to me, you can do it to anybody else. And we need harvesters. We need harvesters. And so I want to end just with the words that Ryan sang to us. It says these words from uh, Keith Green. Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. I want to shine the light you gave through your son you sent to save us from ourselves and from, and from despair. It comforts me to know you're really there. I want to die and let you give your life to me so that I might live and share the hope you gave to me, the love that sets me free. I want to tell the world out there you're not some fable or fairy tale that I've made up inside my head. You're God the Son. You've risen from the dead. And the chorus goes this way. Well, I want to thank you now for being patient with me. Oh, it's hard to see when my eyes are on me. I guess I have to trust and just believe that you, what you say, oh, you're coming again, coming to take me away. 275 times in Scripture is the call to pray. 56 times is call upon the Lord. I pray that today, as we celebrate the missionaries that we have in this place, you yourself will consider yourself a missionary and that you're called by God to be a harvester. I think we're in an era of church 
where the Spirit of God is saying, I'm going to bring discontentment to the hearts of people who are willing to be missionaries. They're going to they're going to look at church as futile and no longer applicable to their life. And that's sad. But if you're staying and you realize that God's calling you to be a harvester, I am telling you, you will, you will experience worship like you've never experienced before. Because in the midst of the harvest comes the praise of the God of harvest. And it will never, never end. Amen.